Reba and Lori Chappelle claim to be happy, and that disturbs us. We're rock-solid certain that it just can't be true, and yet it looks as though there's no foolproof method for comparing their happiness with our own. If they say they're happy, then on what basis can we conclude that they're wrong? Well, we might try the more lawyerly tactic of questioning their ability to know, evaluate, or describe their own experience. They may think they're happy, we could say, but that's only because they don't know what happiness really is. In other words, because Lori and Reba have never had many of the experiences that we singletons have had, spinning cartwheels in a meadow, snorkeling along the Great Barrier Reef, strolling down the avenue without drawing a crowd, we suspect they may have an impoverished background of happy experiences that leads them to evaluate their lives differently than the rest of us would. If, for instance, we were to give the twins a birthday cake, hand them an eight-point scale, which can be thought of as an artificial language with eight words for different intensities of happiness, and ask them to report on their subjective experience, they might tell us they felt a joyful eight. But isn't it likely that their eight and our eight represent fundamentally different levels of joy, and that their use of the eight-word language is distorted by their unenviable situation, which has never allowed them to discover how happy a person can really be? Lori and Reba may be using the eight-word language differently than we do because for them, birthday cake is as good as it gets. They label their happiest experience with the happiest word in the eight-word language, naturally, but this shouldn't cause us to overlook the fact that the experience they call eight is an experience that we might call four and a half. In short, they don't mean happy the way we mean happy. By this account, when the twins say they're ecstatic, they're actually feeling what we feel when we say we're pleased. This is what we might call the language-squishing hypothesis, because it suggests that an impoverished experiential background causes language to be squished, as it were, so that the full range of verbal labels is used to describe a very restricted range of experiences. The language-squishing hypothesis suggests that when given a birthday cake, Lori and Reba feel exactly as you feel, but they talk about it differently. Squishing Language the nice things about this language-squishing hypothesis are A. It suggests that everyone everywhere has the same subjective experience when they receive a birthday cake, even if they describe that experience differently, which makes the world a rather simple place to live and bake. And B. It allows us to go on believing that despite what they say about themselves, Laurie and Reba aren't really happy after all, and thus we're perfectly justified in preferring our lives to theirs. The less nice things about this hypothesis are numerous, and if we worry that Lori and Reba use the eight-word language differently than we do because they've never enjoyed the thrill of a cartwheel, then we'd better worry about a few other matters, too. For instance, we'd better worry that we've never felt the overwhelming sense of peace and security that comes from knowing that a beloved sibling is always by our side, that we'll never lose her friendship no matter what kind of crummy stuff we may say or do on a bad day, that there will Always be someone who knows us as well as we know ourselves, shares our hopes, worries our worries, and so on. If they haven't had our experiences, then we haven't had theirs either. And it's entirely possible that we're the ones with the squished language. That when we say we feel overjoyed, we have no idea what we're talking about because we've never experienced the companionate love, the blissful union, the unadulterated agape that Lori and Reba have. And all of us, you, me, Lori, Reba, had better worry that there are experiences far better than those we've had so far. The experience of flying without a plane, of seeing our children win Academy Awards and Pulitzer Prizes, of meeting God and learning the secret handshake, and that everyone's use of the eight-word language is defective, and that no one knows what happiness really is.
By that reasoning, we should all follow Solon's advice and never say we are happy until we're dead, because otherwise, if the real thing ever does come along, we'll have used up the word and won't have any way to tell the newspapers about it. But these are just the preliminary worries. There are more. If we wanted to do a thought experiment whose results would demonstrate once and for all that Laurie and Reba just don't know what happiness really is, perhaps we should imagine that with a wave of a magic wand we could split them apart and allow them to experience life as singletons. If after a few weeks on their own they came to us, repudiated their former claims, and begged not to be changed back to their former state, shouldn't that convince us, as it has apparently convinced them, that they were previously confusing their fours and eights? We've all known someone who had a religious conversion, went through a divorce, or survived a heart attack, and now claims that her eyes are open for the very first time, that despite what she thought and said in her previous incarnation, she was never really happy until now. Are the people who've undergone such marvelous metamorphoses to be taken at their word? Not necessarily. Consider a study in which volunteers were shown some quiz show questions and asked to estimate the likelihood that they could answer them correctly. Some volunteers were shown only the questions, the question-only group, while others were shown both the questions and the answers, the question-and-answer group. Volunteers in the question-only group thought the questions were quite difficult, while those in the question-and-answer group who saw both the questions, for example, what did Philo T. Farnsworth invent, and the answers, for example, the television set, believed that they could have answered the questions easily had they never seen the answers at all. Apparently, once volunteers knew the answers, the questions seemed simple. Of course it was the television, everyone knows that. And the volunteers were no longer able to judge how difficult the questions would seem to someone who didn't share their knowledge of the answers. Studies such as these demonstrate that once we have an experience, we can't simply set it aside and see the world as we would have seen it had the experience never happened. To the judge's dismay, the jury can't disregard the prosecutor's snide remarks. Our experiences instantly become part of the lens through which we view our entire past, present, and future, and like any lens, they shape and distort what we see. This lens is not like a pair of spectacles that we can set on the nightstand when we find it convenient to do so, but like a pair of contacts that are forever affixed to our eyeballs with superglue. Once we learn to read, we can never again see letters as mere inky squiggles. Once we learn about free jazz, we can never again hear Ornette Coleman's saxophone as a source of noise. Once we learn that Van Gogh was a mental patient or that Ezra Pound was an anti-Semite, we can never again view their art in the same way. If Laurie and Reba were separated for a few weeks, and if they told us that they were happier now than they used to be, they might be right. But they might not. They might just be telling us that the singletons they had become now viewed being conjoined with as much distress as those of us who have always been singletons do, even if they could remember what they thought, said, and did as conjoined twins. We'd expect their more recent experience as singletons to color their evaluation of the conjoined experience, leaving them unable to say with certainty how conjoined twins who had never been singletons actually feel. In a sense, the experience of separation would make them us. And thus, they'd be in the same difficult position that we're in when we try to imagine the experience of being conjoined. Becoming singletons would affect their views of the past in ways they could not simply set aside. All of this means that when people have new experiences that lead them to claim that their language was squished, that they weren't really happy even though they said so and thought so at the time, they can be mistaken. In other words, people can be wrong in the present when they say they were wrong in the past. Stretching Experience 
Lori and Riva haven't done many of the things that for the rest of us give rise to feelings near the top of the happiness scale. Cartwheels, scuba diving, name your poison. And surely, this must make a difference. If impoverished experiential backgrounds don't necessarily squish language, then what do they do instead? Let's assume that Lori and Reba really do have an impoverished experiential background against which to evaluate something as simple as, say, the dutiful presentation of a chocolate cake on their birthday. One possibility is that their impoverished experiential background would squish their language. But another possibility is that their impoverished experiential background would not squish their language so much as it would stretch their experience. That is, when they say eight, they mean exactly the same thing we mean when we say eight, because when they receive a birthday cake, they feel exactly the same way the rest of us feel when we do underwater cartwheels along the Great Barrier Reef. Let's call this the experience-stretching hypothesis. Experience-stretching is a bizarre phrase, but not a bizarre idea. We often say of others who claim to be happy despite circumstances that we believe should preclude it that they only think they're happy because they don't know what they're missing. Okay, sure, but that's the point. Not knowing what we're missing can mean that we are truly happy under circumstances that would not allow us to be happy once we have experienced the missing thing. It does not mean that those who don't know what they're missing are less happy than those who have it. Examples abound in my life and yours, so let's talk about mine. I occasionally smoke a cigar because it makes me happy, and my wife occasionally fails to understand why I must have a cigar to be happy when she can apparently be just as happy without one, and even happier without me having one. But the experience-stretching hypothesis suggests that I too could have been happy without cigars if only I hadn't experienced their pharmacological mysteries in my wayward youth. But I did, and because I did, I now know what I'm missing when I don't. Hence, that glorious moment during my spring vacation when I'm reclining in a lawn chair on the golden sands of Kauai, sipping Talisker and watching the sun slip slowly into a taffeta sea is just not quite perfect if I don't also have something stinky and Cuban in my mouth. I could press both my luck and my marriage by advancing the language-squishing hypothesis, carefully explaining to my wife that because she's never experienced the pungent earthiness of a Monte Cristo number 4, she has an impoverished experiential background, and therefore does not know what happiness really is. I would lose, of course, because I always do, but in this case, I would deserve it. Doesn't it make better sense to say that by learning to enjoy cigars, I changed my experiential background and inadvertently ruined all future experiences that do not include them? The Hawaiian sunset was an eight, until the Hawaiian sunset a la Stogie took its place and reduced the cigarless sunset to a mere seven. But we've talked enough about me and my vacation, let's talk about me and my guitar. I've played the guitar for years, and I get very little pleasure from executing an endless repetition of three-chord blues. But when I first learned to play as a teenager, I would sit upstairs in my bedroom happily strumming those three chords until my parents banged on the ceiling and invoked their rights under the Geneva Convention. I suppose we could try the language-squishing hypothesis here and say that my eyes have been opened by my improved musical abilities and that I now realize I wasn't really happy in those teenage days. But doesn't it seem more reasonable to invoke the experience-stretching hypothesis and say that an experience that once brought me pleasure no longer does? A man who's given a drink of water after being lost in the Mojave Desert for a week may at that moment rate his happiness as eight. A year later, the same drink might induce him to feel no better than two. 
Are we to believe that he was wrong about how happy he was when he took that life-giving sip from a rusty canteen? Or is it more reasonable to say that a sip of water can be a source of ecstasy or a source of moisture, depending on one's experiential background? If impoverished experiential backgrounds squish our language rather than stretch our experience, then children who say they're delighted by peanut butter and jelly are just plain wrong, and they'll admit it later in life when they get their first bite of goose liver, at which time they will be right, until they get older and begin to get heartburn from fatty foods, at which time they will realize that they were wrong then, too. Every day would be a repudiation of the day before, as we experienced greater and greater happiness and realized how thoroughly deluded we were until, conveniently enough, now. So which hypothesis is correct? We can't say. What we can say is that all claims of happiness are claims from someone's point of view, from the perspective of a single human being whose unique collection of past experiences serves as a context, a lens, a background for her evaluation of her current experience. As much as the scientist might wish for it, there isn't a view from nowhere. Once we have an experience, we're thereafter unable to see the world as we did before. Our innocence is lost, and we can't go home again. We may remember what we thought or said, though not necessarily. And we may remember what we did, though not necessarily that either. But the likelihood is depressingly slim that we can resurrect our experience and then evaluate it as we would have back then. In some ways, the cigar-smoking, guitar-playing, pate-eating people we become have no more authority to speak on behalf of the people we used to be than do outside observers. The separated twins may be able to tell us how they now feel about having been conjoined, but they can't tell us how conjoined twins who've never experienced separation feel about it. No one knows if Reba's and Lori's eight feels like our eight, and that includes all the Reba's and Lori's that will ever be.